everyone. Welcome to a French Village podcast. I'm here with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes. Ben, how you doing, man? Well, I was doing fine until I watched these two episodes. But Sarah, this is getting to be a downer here because we have left the realm of mere, mere occupation and hostage taking by the German army, and now we're in full-on summer of 42 Holocaust land. Uh, And I kind of, even though I know this history, wasn't really prepared for that. So I just want to say I blame you. Yeah, I understand that. I will say last week uh, I prefaced, I kind of told you season three is really tough. And I, I, again, without getting ahead of ourselves too much, I, it is, it is the toughest um, season to get through. And actually in particular, these episodes and actually in particular, um, episode three, um, which is, uh, we just watched episodes three and four. Uh, and the reason it is so difficult, uh, is because it is about child separation. Um, it is about taking children away from their parents as a mechanism for terrorizing all involved. Um, and, uh, it also, I remember when I watched this the first time, um, you know, we weren't so, child separation was very much, it is a, it is a topic we are still talking about, um, but and and I can't quite pinpoint it, but you know there was there was obviously when the Department of Justice in the United States started separating children from their families as a matter of deterrence practice and made it a policy, and then there was like a second round later on where a bunch of reporting came out about how those decisions were made, and for example, one Rod Rosenstein, um, who I think for many of us through. Um, the Mueller report early days had seen him as somebody who was kind of a keeper of the rule of law flame. And it turns out he actually, and, and as we learned more and as our own history progressed, we saw that was not, not quite the case about him, um, that he sort of figured out how to accommodate himself uh, over time and also then learned that he was somebody who kind of played a role in, um, in the child separation uh, policy, but but anyway, the, so obviously that conversation. I remember watching this and feeling the 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 gut wrenchingness of this. The, there was somebody, I think it was Andy Serwer at the Atlantic, had written that piece. The cruelty is the point, and that is what kept running through my head uh, as I watched this episode. I believe the first time too, just the idea that what is one of the cruelest things that you can do to human beings. Uh, And that is whether you are the adult and someone takes your child away or you are a child who doesn't understand really what's going on and someone separates you from your parents. Basically, there's not that much that's crueler than that. Yeah. Uh, There is one thing that's crueler than that, and that's that's the intentional separation of child and parents for purposes of making the murder of both more convenient and effectual. Um, And that's actually what this episode is about. Um, And I do think the resonance with the contemporary child separation issues on the southern border during the Trump period bring it to an acute uh, focus, but it is uh, important to remember that the purpose of this child separation was murder and, um, you know, the sort of administrative convenience of murder. And, um, And I do think... You know, I I am in no sense an apologist for the Trump administration, but I do think uh, that actually, no pun intended, separates this situation from mere child separation uh, with all acknowledgement that you cannot watch this without thinking about the southern border. 
Yeah. It, so, um, yes, as always, we have to sort of acknowledge the difference uh, between that there is there is resonance, but of course there is there is difference uh, in in kind, but. When one something you just said is something that was actually unclear to me in the episodes, and it's difficult to talk about, but I, I actually, it is not clear in the episodes why they are separating the children from the parents, and you seem to know that it was for purposes of um, how they were going to be sent to the to their deaths, um, and, and maybe it, you could talk more about that because to me, just watching the episode it seemed almost like they were doing it like to break them more than as an actual... Because one of the things that's, that's interesting about the episode is you're trying to... right, You have this, this incomprehensible evil thing being done. And so you're trying to figure out like, okay, well, what are the reasons? And one of the things that keeps happening is that everyone tells you they don't know anything, right? Like no one... Colwitz doesn't know why the Gestapo wants them to do it and seems to think that there's some administrative reason... Um, you know, Servier only knows what he knows from Colwitz, so has even less of an understanding of why they're doing it. Morhange, who's sent in as the person who has to deliver this devastating news and kind of manage the emotions around it, knows even less. And nobody, nobody seems to under to know why they were doing this. And so, so tell me how how it is. Uh, like, tell me what the historical. All right. Yeah. So there are a, there are several historical there there's a a million pieces of history going on in this episode. Uh, as far as I know, all of them accurately portrayed. But let's start with let's start with uh, working backwards. These people are on their way to Auschwitz. They are on their way to Auschwitz through a French-run camp that is never mentioned by name in, in this uh, uh, series so far, which is, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce it, Darcy, uh, or Darcy, it's spelled uh, uh, D-R-A-R-C-Y, I think, Darcy, Darcy. And the French-run camp uh, was, uh, so interestingly for historical purposes, it was run by the French, not by the Nazis. They were using it for, it was basically a French-run concentration camp that they were holding foreigners and foreign Jews in. They, you know, they had their own beef with uh, foreign foreign Jews who were settling in in France. Um, Conditions were abominable, um, and um, I think thousands and thousands of people died in that camp. Um, and that was before the Germans uh, would then deport people to uh, mostly to Auschwitz, I think maybe to some other uh, of the death camps as well. Uh, about uh, two-thirds of the foreign Jews in France were killed during the war, and about half or a, th- a third or so of French Jews were also killed. Um, so the episode takes place in the... It's, the date is important here. It is July of 1942. And so two things have happened since our last set of episodes. Uh, the first is, and again, neither of these is mentioned in the episode, but the date is important. The first is uh, the Vansay Conference, which happens in January of 42, which is where the German high command decides that on what they called the final solution to the Jewish problem, which is to say to try to murder all the Jews of Europe. Um, and so this shifts policy in all of the areas that the Germans have occupied uh, from one of uh, some massacres. There were, you know, a lot of massacres, particularly in the East, um, uh, but mostly concentration of Jews and discrimination. Um, It shifts the policy toward 
actively removing Jewish populations from these countries that the Germans had occupied and either, you know, uh, bringing them into forests and shooting them or and over time building, con you know, death camps and gassing them. Um, by the summer of 42, uh, and this is why the July of 42 date is significant, this policy has really reached France. And um, the Germans uh, uh, have ordered Vichy, and Vichy has agreed to start rounding up Jews. Um, they have insisted on the wearing of the yellow star. Vichy resists this in the unoccupied sector, but remember Villeneuve, this fictitious village, is in the occupied sector. Um, and so the compromise that the Germans and the Vichy government reach is basically that Vichy will help round up Jews and deport, turn them over to the Germans, concentrate them at this French-run camp, and then let the Germans remove them. It's not spoken about what's happening to them. They are like the euphemism that people use is resettlement in the East. Over time, people figure out that that's a euphemism. Uh, I think word is just starting to get back to people that these people are, you know, they're not being resettled, but people don't believe it. You know, there's a there's a lot of confusion about what happens to them. Um in July of 1942, the French round up, I think it's about, it's like 40,000 Jews or something. It's like an incredible, it's a very large number of people. And these people is the first big wave of deportations to death camps. Um, the reason they are separating children from their families uh, is the same reason they're doing a lot of other things, which is the more you take away from people the more dependent they are on you and the more compliant they will be because you're holding their kids hostage. It's also why they are, uh, you know, not feeding them, right? Because if you're arguing about, if, if you're worried about, can you get enough food to survive the next 48 hours uh, and you know you're gonna get shot if you try to run away, you're going to be more compliant. The more you have over people, uh, the, the more leverage you have and the more compliant they will be, and the more you can get them to do the work for you. And Morhange is a really interesting uh, character in that respect. And by the way, this is also completely accurate. Uh, there is a reference in... When Cremieux is talking to this guy, Victor, who is some kind of Jewish resistance figure, he asks him about one of the major Jewish organizations in France. And uh, uh, Victor's response is, no, they work for the Germans. This is a, a, the organization he asked about is a real relief organization that really was basically doing the Germans' bidding is a real Jewish relief organization that was helping the Germans because that enabled them to distribute food. It enabled them to, uh, 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 you know, keep their own, um, uh, it, it enabled them to, to do things that they thought were actually important and if you don't assume that you're helping people murder people, um, then you're in this Morhange-like position where, hey, can you get the children some care, right? Can you get, because you don't think you're negotiating with mass murder. Uh, and so the separation of children um, makes everybody easier to control. And that's, you know, the fundamental German policy with respect to the Jewish population was isolate people, um, isolate them from other French people, um, isolate them from each other, make them negotiate for everything. And 
um, including, you know, just staying alive the next 12 hours. And then when you tell them to get in a cattle car and get off at a gas chamber, uh, they're much easier. It's much easier to do that if you have their kids in a different cattle car. Yeah. Uh, I think that one of the reasons what you said at the beginning of the episode about how like brutal it is, is that one of the things, this entire show is about the Holocaust, right? But it doesn't, there's a, there's a way in which it usually exerts a, a, a total but distant force on the actions. Whereas in these episodes, it's incredibly acute. The, and the other thing I would just say, like narratively, one of the things the show does I think to to make it it watchable uh, is that it cuts much of the brutality with with drama, right? That makes it so you can watch it and ingest it without. And there's not there's not very much of that in these. Like they, the episodes are quite they are they want you. The show is going to give you drama in lots of places, but in these episodes, it is going to make you look very hard. At what's happening, and and I think that and that forces it, uh, and it, it, one of the things that I in the in the early part of episode three when Colwitz tells Servier and Larche that they want to separate the children, even Servier says like that's not a thing we can do. Like there is a there is a um, the looks on their faces the like the what what physically you how you see them react to it uh it's one of those moments where for them for the characters what is happening like they couldn't imagine it would get to this place right that 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 they are doing they have been accommodating and they have been making these you know these doing these negotiations and now the thing that they are being asked to do um is is too hard uh, and but the difference and I think this was sort of an important moment uh, because Servier and Larche are always being asked to do these things at the same time and uh, but the way that they react is always quite different uh, but it was sort of distilled in this scene where Larche says we cannot do this you know that so and it's well, hold this on is, one second. oh no Sorry, go ahead. And Servier says, but we will do it. And you know that. Yes. So I was skeptical of this. This, you know, the Vichy officials being outraged and having a moment of, oh, my God, what the fuck are we doing? Um, And so I went back to one of my histories of the period. And it turns out that this is actually also quite accurate, um, that um, the summer of the, the roundups in the summer of 42 was the first event that really sparked a shift toward the resistance and that it really discredited Vichy in the eyes of a lot of everyday French people. There were actual public protests when people uh, were forced to wear the yellow star, uh, there was a lot of public approbation of people with the yellow star. It was it was a move away in in public sentiment. Uh, it was kind of the first time the plight of Jews in France actually mattered to people. Um, and I, I found one letter. Um, uh, wrote a letter to one woman from the small town of Saint-Juan, uh, wrote to the marshal, quote, France has dishonored herself in inflicting such cruel treatment on people who thought they were finding an asylum in our country. We are ashamed to be French, to be Christian, and the veneration which surrounds your person has been unsettled, if not indeed swept away. Um, and so I think there were a lot of people who were, like Servier, actually anti-Semites and actually, like, Servier is a bad guy, but there's something about uh, being put in that position that 
made a lot of people suck their gut in. It's when a lot of French people started hiding Jews. Uh, not enough, obviously. But the summer of 42 marks a big shift in French attitudes toward Vichy. Uh, it's the period where they were they came to be seen as not as our legitimate government and, you know, the marshals in an impossible position, but will save us. But with uh, uh, contempt as collaborators in, in the negative sense of the word. And I think the portrait of Servier here is uh, is and of Larchet as just like saying, no, we can't do that. But then, of course, they are Vichy officials. And so, yeah, we can't do that, but we will. And Larchet in this is completely frustrating. I mean, he resigns. And then the next day, he's back on the basis of if they return the children, I'll, I'll be back. And of course, they don't. And he's back. Um, you know, he's his usual impossible self. Uh, maybe I missed this in the episode. So he is back in the sense that he's treating the Jews at the school like no, but he's negotiating with Kolwitz again as mayor because Servier says I haven't accepted your resignation yet, and he says I'll 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 come back if we can negotiate right. with Kolwitz and get the kids back, and then you know he's oh, in, and then Kolwitz basically says yes, like we can do this, right? But of course. The you know yeah Nazi promises aren't worth that much right. but you know Larche is is just back and you know th th there's there seems to be you know you have this point where he says we can't do this Servier looks at him and says but we will and you know that and he's like ultimately he's like yeah you're right we will um, and. You know, I I thought it was a particularly bad pair of episodes for Larche. Hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I, he doesn't know yet that the word is meaningless. I mean, it seems to me a, a actually quite rational thing for him to be able to use him staying on as mayor as collateral for getting the kids back. So he doesn't know that it's not going to work. We don't even know. Uh, in fact, we, as the audience, think the kids might come back until the very end of the last episode where the German shoulders, uh, soldiers show up instead. Uh, and and that and, because they're all told the kids are coming back, right? They're told and instead it's, it's German soldiers because there's been an escape, which I want to get into uh, with the cones. But um, I, I don't know. I guess I, I, I wasn't judging... Daniel is harshly in these episodes. Like there is that, um, the scenes, and maybe now we do have to sort of talk about the cones because one of the things that happens that involves Daniel is where Morhange sees, okay, so I'm just going to back up and talk about the cones really quickly. So I had mentioned last week that they, these people, we've met them before. They were the people that um, early on with Sarah Meyer were uh, Marie's husband was supposed to take to the border to help escape. He abandons them. Uh, this, their little boy is killed. And so now it is Mr. Cohn, Mrs. Cohen, and their daughter. Um, and they, they are at the, they're at the school. They're part of this group that's being held. Um, and the, the woman, the, the wife we see in this episode is just, it has it has it has broken her spirit. She is um, you you know from Daniel examining her that at some point she has already tried to kill herself, um, and the separating of the children is just is reasonably too much for her. And there's this she she because she is undone by it. Morhange gets really mad at her uh, because this woman she's being hysterical and, uh, when they're trying to sort this out. Morhange is trying to keep everybody calm. And so Morhan yells at her, and then shortly thereafter, you see her commit suicide in the bathroom. She gets her hands on some scissors, and it's it's incredibly brutal um, that she's killed herself. And so Mr. Cohn is now alone. His daughter is separated from him. She does not yet know that her mother is dead. Uh, and you see him looking at his, playing with his wedding ring, and at some point give it to a German, or not, sorry, the, uh, the French guard, the gendarme, um, and Morhange sees this and seems panicked by it 
I suppose because she doesn't want anybody to do anything that's going to get a bunch of people shot. Right. Or and so, to endanger the possibility of the kids being reunited, reunited. again. Again, separation, child separation as a means of social control. It gets Morhage, you know, to, to exact a promise from this guy that he won't try to escape. Um, and Daniel's part of that. Like yeah. Daniel, right, they are both kind of like do not do anything. Um, and so to me, but so taking taking that scene with Daniel and then taking the other scenes with Daniel, I guess I didn't see him as being in these episodes. Like he was he was quitting over this in a way that Servier is like, we're going to do this, but I hate it. Danielle was like, I'm not doing this. I refuse. Um, and then only is like bartering his ability to get the kids back for them, which to me seems... I don't know. I, I guess what 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 are what are his alternatives? And this is I ask myself this all the time in the show when I'm watching Morhange. Morhange like gets like Servier tells her in the car, and you see her. She just she can't process it. She sort of agrees to do it because you know he's telling her why this is important and everything's going to be okay. And she starts to go in and she comes back and she's like, I cannot do this. Um, and he. He tries to like, so like, sh I keep thinking, what is the alternative, right? Like, you know what she's telling herself here. She's telling herself is, it's my responsibility to try to keep people calm, to to do this in a way where nobody gets hurt, to take care of the kids, to try to get as many promises as I can. Like, parents can go, a couple of, you know, mothers can go over there and teachers to be with the children. And so she really focuses on, what can she do to make this situation marginally better? Um, which I think is just like such a human thing to do. Um, and I feel like that's sort of what Larche is doing too. Even though in these episodes with Morhange, there is a part of you the whole time that's just saying, stop doing what Servier wants you to do. Um, so so I, I don't know. I guess I didn't I, – I, you see the impossibility of their position here. Uh, so go ahead. Yeah, so um, I think the the key thing with Larche is <clears throat> always the comparison with his brother. Mm. Um, and the comparison sometimes favors one. And, you know, if you're thinking about the safety of his own children, uh, you know, Danielle Larche has um, is taking care of of Marcel Larche's son. Gustave. Gustav, because uh, and Captain Kara, because um, because you know he's Marcel is on the run. Um, uh, if you're thinking about the best way to confront the German occupation in all its murderousness, non-cooperation is the right answer, and. None of the nobody looks good in retrospect for the little compromises that they made with this monstrous evil. I don't even think Madame Morhange looks good for trying to persuade, you know, at, at you know, and she's, you know, in barring some intervention is going to get gassed herself. I mean, she's she's uh, uh, as much a victim as anybody. Um, and yet she's trying to persuade somebody not to escape. Um, and I think, you know, in retrospect, the right answer was no holds barred resistance, irrespective of cost. And the people, the people we remember as heroes of this period, uh, whether you think of it from a French resistance point of view or a Jewish resistance point of view, are the people who said, I'm not negotiating with the devil. And, um, you know, and I'm not, I I'm not negotiating for the terms of my extermination. Um, and I, now, do I judge the people who made other judgments depends how depends on who they were, right? The for the Vichy officials, yeah, I judge them really harshly. Some of them, you know, were war criminals. Um, the 
the Jews who were trying to get their kids back, uh, as depicted in this episode, who negotiated with the gendarme? No, of course not, right? And so it depends how far up or down the totem pole you are and what you negotiated away. So, you know, there's a subplot in here where um, Marchetti um, uh, extorts uh, from two Jewish women the name of their forger so that you know, who forged their papers, you know, I judge them. They, they shouldn't have given people up. Um, uh, so I, I think it's complicated. Um, but I think the depiction of the stress, the moral stress that this puts on everybody from the, the pure victims to the, you know, coerced perpetrators to the eager perpetrators is uh, is very real and and very true. Yeah, and I would just add one one of the metrics that I'm using for judgment is also like what they know um like how much information they have because one of the things that that is startling um is that when you watch it as a viewer you know they're being going to go to death camps. But right. these people don't like so when Larsha keeps being like any word on the train, you know, and everybody keeps sort of was like, boy, we need this train to come. Right. It, as would, though, it would be a good thing if the train. That's came. right. That the train, <laughs> you know, it's like there's this constant uh, undertone of people trying to figure because they're like, we need to get these people to their destination, which is going to be clearly better than being crammed in this school. Uh, and of course, that's not the case. And so um, I guess that is also. It is a reminder throughout the episode to me that they still don't have any sense of what they're doing, right? And 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 that shifts, right? So the negotiate like they don't think they're negotiating for their lives. They think they're negotiating to get them to a place that is that is better. Well, some of them intuit more than others. Like Morhange is, you know in a fantasy world, right? right. They're going to be sent to war camps or whatever. Um, but Mr. Cohen knows, uh, knows the score. But Cohen knows what's up and that's why he's behaving differently. Right. Like this is the thing, right? So I actually had written that in my notes, like Cohen knows what's up. And so he is like, you guys are the crazy ones. Like at some point they say to him, like it would be crazy to escape. And he's like, I'm crazy. Like, what are you, what are we doing here? And and obviously, as a viewer with the full historical perspective, you're like, that guy is right. But he's one of the only people who seems to know uh, what is happening. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I think I, one of the reasons I, I do appreciate the show is that I think as a, as you grow up and you learn about the Holocaust, there is, I remember this all the time being like, why are people just going? Why aren't they fighting? You know, just this like total shock at how this was able to happen and why people weren't doing more. And the show, maybe for the first time with something that I I could really uh, relate to on this deeper level or, or follow or, or it takes you, takes you really deep on the psychology of why people were going along. And so much of it is, is what they don't know yet. And, you know, it just, you think about how different information was back then, like, full-on death camps are happening somewhere. These people are going to them. So, like, the Germans know about this, but still the people in these towns and the Jews in these towns but even, have no even, idea that's what what's happening. Even some of the Germans don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think Kolwitz knows that the Jews are being deported, but, you know, information is relatively regimented. His job is to be an occupying army officer, not to run a death camp. And, you know, this was uh, not a, the best kept secret in the world, but it wasn't the worst kept secret in the world. And information about it was just starting to trickle out. Um, and, you know, I forget where I read this one prominent French Jew who wrote that he didn't believe the rumors of Auschwitz until even until he was standing at the gates. Um, and so, you know, there was a, um, there was a information control was key. And over the next two years, 
when, you know, Jews started behaving very differently, um, uh, many, many more went into hiding, many more uh, French people uh, started helping uh, uh, smuggling Jews out, uh, both into the Italian sector of occupation, which uh, turned out to be that's a comp that turned out to be complicated because the Germans later invaded that, but also into Switzerland and um, and North Africa. Um, so, I, I mean, P Jews started behaving differently and French people started behaving differently. The more information uh, changed. The other thing is that, you know, the 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 lack of Jewish resistance is largely a myth um, like there was active Jewish resistance. Uh, it, when they have your kids, you know, and they have machine guns pointed at you, uh, and you're disarmed, that's a pretty tough time to act, ask for military resistance. Yeah. And I, I do, I mean, I, I've, there's lots of stories of, of Jewish resistance and, but I think I'm, I'm more talking about when I was sort of younger, you know, like you're sort of first learning about the Holocaust and it seems so like, like the person who couldn't believe that the death camps exist. Like the first time you learn about this happening, it is, you can't believe that this happened. And, right. and, and, and so, um, I, I just, I, that that's sort of that's just how I, I remember feeling that way. That like, why would you get on a train? Why would you? But but I when I watch the show, I just I I constantly because especially the second time watching it, what I am what I'm trying to to do a more a, a more serious job of critically is assess complicity and say, okay, well, what what are the like what are the moral choices that you should, that really people should be held accountable for? And so, and one of the metrics then you have to do is like, how much do they know? Right. Um, and so I guess that, that, just going back to our slight debate over Larche in this moment. Um, I want to tell you who Larche is and uh, is really reminding me of. Tell me. Paul Ryan. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sure. Tell um, me more about that. Well, I mean, obviously, again, separating... Like, you know, he clearly knows better. His personal conduct is decent with respect to Sarah Meyer, with respect to all the individuals he comes into contact with. But he just can't manage to leave. He can't manage to say, I don't want to have anything to do with this. You know, if this is the direction things are going, do it without me. And he's, there's something unthinkable to him about, you know, he even says it at one point, I, I, don't, I'm, I resign, I'm not going to be mayor. But then it takes just a, it doesn't even take reuniting the parents with their children. It just takes a meeting to do it and, and, and where you think it's going to happen. And he's back. And you want to, you want to take him by the shoulders and shake him and say, you know, what are you doing? What, why are you, why is it so important to you to be the person in control, you know, in control that you're willing to do this for them and you're willing to smooth everything over and make it possible to do these things. And he, like Paul Ryan, he has a Kevin McCarthy figure who's this lawyer for, you know, who's much worse. And um, he kind of can look over his shoulder and Servier can say, hey, you don't want that guy to be mayor. And he buys it. And I, I think this is you know, a, um, you know, obviously with all of these things, it, you know, I don't want to, you know, compare the contemporary Republican Party with, you know, this situation, but it does remind me the logic of it, um, where you kind of convince yourself that it'll be much worse if you weren't there. 
And you're just kidding yourself. You're, you're just lending your name to things that you patently don't believe in. Yeah. I mean, I do think, I don't know who I was talking about this with the other day, but, um, but I was trying to, I was expressing some thoughts about the Republicans and, and thinking about the French village. And one of them is right, complicity has a lot to do with the stories that you tell yourself. And in like Paul Ryan's case, he told himself early on, he told himself the story that, okay, Trump got elected and, you know, he didn't like him, but like, okay, we're in the majority. We've got the House and the Senate. We can do some good things. Somebody's got to be this restraining force on him um, and it'll be me. Uh, and in, it clearly, and then like it kind of ate him alive. Like he grew a terrible beard and it looked like he, he was miserable. And then he just like quit, right? He quit and resigned from Congress, but not in a way where he quit and said, I quit because what I'm watching right now is the bastardization of everything I've ever believed in. And it's horrible. He instead quit and said, I want to be on the board. I want to be on the board of Fox. That's right. Uh, That's right. Um, And I will say, so because the moral stakes are different here, I don't want to say that Paul Ryan's worse than Larche because that's not fair in terms of the the broader stakes. But I want to say that I think he's worse in the sense that Larche. I think that Larche acts in good faith all the time, right? I think he is in every moment trying to figure out how to make things better. And so he is guilty of a kind of obtuseness to what's happening, but he is looking at the human beings in front of him and constantly trying to improve whatever's happening. Um, And in many cases, you know, he does do things, like remember like when he says, take me instead, you know, take me instead of the prisoners. Like he has put himself in there uh, on more than one occasion. Um, and I just, with the show, like there's, unless you are part of the active resistance, right, who are our, who are our heroes, um, you know, Larche, I just think Larche is doing more immediate good than Paul Ryan was doing. And you could see, I don't see how, I don't think that the Paul Ryan, hey, we might get a tax cut and therefore we can tolerate it is like a good story to tell yourself. Whereas the, I am a medical doctor and I can help these people in the immediate sense. And I can continue to be a voice and an advocate for them with these other politicians is a more concrete good. So point taken, Larche is a much more appealing character because he, he the show focuses a great deal on his personal decency and also his torment which um you know is real and uh, or, or fictitious but um but is a forces you to have sympathy with him there's also the again to go back to the brothers there's also this thing that you know Larche is endlessly personally decent and can really see the pain of the people in front of him and will act to intervene to alleviate the pain of the people in front of him, uh, but is blind to the larger structural costs of behaving that way. Mm-hmm. His brother is blind to the personal pain of the people around him, including his son. Or justifies it. Or justifies it, uh, you know, is uninhibited by it at the very least, um, uh, and yet can see the structural uh, uh, bigger picture, right? Or at least when the, you know, even without the party telling him, okay, now it's time for resistance, he's able to see that early. Um, yeah, we're missing the, I am, I very much am missing the the communists at the moment. There are like four episodes where we have had none of them. and No communists. And this thing is happening and like there's nobody there to take sort of wanton action to well, do something so, the so way there that they is, would. But there is one, two people, um, which is Cremieu, who mm-hmm. is really coming into his own yes. as a serious person. And by the way, part of that is, you know, he's got a daughter and a wife in this camp 
and or in this lockup. Uh, and he says at one point the resistance has to come first. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, actually it's a very muted moment in the thing. Uh, but that's a huge moment when 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 you are able to say as a French industrialist uh, who's used to the system protecting you and, you know, you have a lot of privilege and your wife and child have been locked up and you're able to say the priority is not rescuing my family. The priority is whatever we can do at the bigger picture level. Uh, And that's a, a horrible you know, he's not doing what Morhange is doing. He's not figuring out how to make people's lives easier in the moment. He's figuring out how to take it to the enemy. And and that's morally also really complicated. It is. Because uh, I, 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 I will tell you, I prefer Cone very much. I, like, I actually find Cremieux hiding out at Marie's house and not going to do something about them. Like, I'm kind of like, hey, resistance guys, like, when are we going to go bomb the school and, like, try to do a daring rescue? You know, like, uh, so, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying, um, but I I, I am, I, I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel funny about this. So, uh, look, I think this is a lizard brain calculation, right? Mm-hmm. This is really cold-blooded, but he's like, we can't do anything for them. Um, as long as there's a way to help his wife, he's planning to get her across into Switzerland. Uh, that blows up. She's locked up. He can't do much for her. He can do something about the cement factory. And, and he turns that off and says, I'm going to think about what I can do. And I think that's, um, I think that's cold-blooded. It's also, you know, if you want to take on Nazis, um, you know, their supply lines are what's keeping them going. And, you know, I think at some point you have to say, where's the soft spot that I can hit? And there's no way to rescue those people. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the other characters. And, and so there is this like Berio, Cremieux, Marie resistance thing forming uh, that, that's been going on since the school, the printing press. Um, and, you know, the, the episodes start with Berio kind of coming back home after they've all run away because the truck has been stopped at a checkpoint and he doesn't know if they know who he is. Um, so... One of the things that that is a rare bright spot in this two horrible episodes is that Lucien finally finally stops acting like an idiot and uh, like she's like she she can be detached from this whole thing and she is in the Cremieux's house like Barrio comes back and he's like listen I didn't tell you this but I'm working with Cremieux and her her response is more like yes we have to help. Right. And like, and then she goes to the Cremieux's house where the daughter is alone. Like she knows that she's alone. She goes there to get her. And Marchetti shows up. And Lucien has like a real spine about the whole thing. Uh, like at one point, she just like says, Are you arresting us or not? Then let us go. And uh, says something, I can't remember what, to Marchetti that he's like, I could have you arrested for that. But she is just she's standing up to him in this way that we've basically not seen her behave before. Yes. And ironically, to go back to your earlier point of depending on what people know, she is accidentally getting Helene Cremieux killed um, by protect. Right. So she she her big, bold move here is to take the Cremieux's daughter, whose mother has been whose mother is Austrian Jewish and has been um uh, uh, and again, little details that the that the movie get, that the film gets right uh, hasn't is it's mentioned that she's originally from Austria and her last name is Berg, which is an Austrian Jewish name. Um, and so, you know, just little little details that there's no reason to expect a film to get right, um, and it does. Um, 
so Madame uh, Cremieux has been arrested and taken to the school as a foreign Jew. And uh, Lucien good-heartedly takes her daughter to her mother, which is to say to the transit camp on the way to Auschwitz. Uh, uh, again, moral, uh, an example of a year from then, she would know not to do that. Right. 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 Like that, that's, that's the kind of love that gets people killed. Right. Um, so Helen is now, uh, uh, though herself a French Jew, um, is now like Madame Morhange mixed up with the, uh, non, uh, with the foreign Jews, um, uh, Lucien is definitely elevating in our eyes. She is eight months pregnant and she volunteers with her husband, who is also elevating in our eyes with his encouragement to go anyway to basically babysit the children, uh, under in wretched conditions. And, you know, that's the, the, uh, she's developing some kind of a spine. Um, yes, I, I think it, Lucien has begins to have some of her best episodes, and there's also this. Um, there is the, there is this undercurrent through these episodes, and it's one of the few things that keeps keeps me going as you watch them because they're so brutal. Is like the coming together in the very infant stages of a certain character group in the resistance, right? And we've been seeing this, but now like Barrio and Cremieu and Marie and now Lucienne is in. Uh, and then at the end of this, of our fourth episode, Marie goes to see Schwartz. And because they need to get this information about the concrete factory, he is selling the concrete to the Germans. Um, so he has access to some of the papers. And he says to her... Perfectly, this is like, this is a, uh, so Marie, uh, so Cremieux is motivated by the fact that he is Jewish. He believes this is obviously this deep injustice. Berio uh, is a Freemason, which we should, at some point, I, I would like to know more about the history of what like these Freemason, what the whole deal is with that. Um, and, and people call him a Republican. Uh, and so his politics are aligned with at least some resistance. Uh, Marie, it's just like, Marie seems to have a deep moral clarity that comes from somewhere inside of her. Um, Lucienne, as things dawn on her, at least has some sense of justice here. Um, but Schwartz uh, basically says, uh, and I don't know, I both sort of, this is both horrible, but but also true, I think, to the character, says, you know, um, I will do this for you, Marie, uh, not for your ridiculous cause, but because of your beautiful eyes and because I am bored. And uh, and with that, Schwartz has entered the resistance. Yeah, I found this um, pretty unpersuasive, honestly. I think they, as just as a narrative matter, they needed to figure out a way to get him involved. And it's tricky because he clearly believes in nothing. Um I think the better plot device, honestly, would have been his hatred for his wife, who's mm. taken over the cement factory. Um, but that said, um, uh, yeah, you see this nascent group coming together. And again, this is accurate. Um, this is the period, uh, the summer of 42 is the period in which Vichy dramatically discredits itself and people start seeing operating on behalf of the Free French, the, De Gaulle, the Gaullists who are based in London, operating the communists are, this is not a communist group, but the one of the bigger factions that was a resistance faction were, were communists. Um, and, um, and also just individual acts of, of resistance, small networks of resistance. Um, so the answer to the Freemason question is that Freemasonry, uh, the history of which is not something I know a whole lot about, was uh, hated by nationalists of 
uh, ultra-nationalists of all sorts uh, all over Central Europe. Hitler was obsessed with Freemasons as well. And I think one of the reasons is, is that it's an international movement. Um, uh, and so, you know, one of the complaints about, you know, Jews is that they don't so allegedly don't have loyalty to their country because they're, you know, internationalist and cosmopolitan. And 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 the uh, uh, the same complaint is made of the Freemasons. Uh, they were also uh, relatively secretive. You know, they had these lodges and rituals and they made pledges to things other than the state. Um, and they were basically fraternal organizations that, um, you know, that were not easily controllable by nationalists. Hmm. And so they became for many ultra-nationalists. I think the other psychological motivation was you can't blame everything on the Jews because there are nationalist elements that are, there are non-nationalist elements that aren't Jewish, right? And so Freemasons were this other, and you still hear like, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about Freemasonry to this day. It's still an obsession with people who are obsessed with Jews. Uh, they, the, there has to be a word for non-Jewish Jews, right? The not, your non-Jewish enemies. And so Freemasonry. Uh, and of course, that concentrated in Central, in Europe, Western Europe and Central Europe, concentrated Republican energy in Freemason lodges, right? So if you're, if you're, if the crazy right thinks Freemasons are this evil international thing and you're a Republican school principal, maybe you join a, a, your local lodge. And so there's a self-fulfilling quality to it. And so in this period of the late 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, Freemasonry in France and, and elsewhere in Europe was associated with liberal republicanism. Hmm. Okay. Well, I want to talk about just two last quick things. Uh, so one is that Daniel and Sarah uh, finally make out. Uh, I hate this. Uh, I don't. Yep, I know. Uh Okay. Well, I'm just you know just gonna put it out there. No, no. I, have, I think we we're allowed to disagree about. Yeah, things. No, I'm just I'm just. She is she is clearly 20. He is clearly 54, uh, 55. It's not best practices. Uh, and I find it gross. Uh, not not. It's just their age difference. It's like he's her boss. She looks like a child to me. Um, it just I just I don't care for it as a story arc. Uh, and. Yeah, I just I don't I don't like it. No, I'm I'm going to defend the relationship here. Um, these are people under stress that the show does a good job of depicting, but is uh, unlike the stress that normal human beings can possibly imagine, and it is every day waking up and having people's lives depend on you, uh, literally, like they will die if you do not behave uh, optimally. And even Sarah and Sarah's life is constantly in danger. Uh, her family is vanished. Uh, she's been in and out of detention. She could be deported at any moment. And in fact, at the end of the episode is in fact arrested. Um, and by the way, they are both dealing with one of the most malevolent non-Nazi characters in the entire show. We've gone this far without talking about Hortense in this episode, but she's still there. She's still living in the goddamn house with them. Um, she's also on her best behavior for the last couple episodes. Yeah, which, which doesn't doesn't stop her from menacing Sarah. Right. Um, and uh, And I think... You know, the idea that they, you know, fall in love in some or some reasonable temporary facsimile of it under the circumstances is, uh, I, you know, like totally understandable. 
Um, he's got a little bit of a savior thing going for her legitimately. Um, he is hiding her after all. And she is the uh, uh, smart, interesting, capable, uh, uh, and morally decent alternative to his unbelievably vile wife. And I just want to say of all the problems that this show surfaces in human behavior, this form of adultery strikes me as really low on the list. Not going to say I'm for it, but I'm not going to spend any time judging them over it. Okay. Well, then we'll talk about our other romance that I also find uh, displeasing, which is uh, between Marchetti and, ooh, I'm blanking on her name. Rita. Rita, thank you. Um and uh, this is both a plot device um, because Marchetti uh, is, is is scrambling for ways to save them. He's already let them go in the previous episodes, despite knowing the the papers are um, forged because he's got he's got himself a little crush on Rita. Um, and Rita seems she's both making the correct sort of moral, she's like kicking the tires on the morality of of their blossoming relationship by saying like, you would have total control of me because you could pull the plug. If I didn't want to be with you, you can just send me to a death camp, um, which is true. Uh, and yet she seems amenable. Well, sort of amenable. Um, she goes for a walk with him. And then she kind of, sho- you know, there's a kiss. And then she kind of shoves him away and says, uh, I know what you're doing and I don't want to per- I don't want to do this. And so when he tries to, you know, he w- when he tries to save her after they she and her mother get arrested, he doesn't extort her. He extorts the mother um, because she's actually not really shown that she's willing to play ball. And um, uh, so, look, Marchetti is a vile, vile human being. Getting worse all the time. Getting worse all the time. And uh, the sexual extortion that he's engaged in which is basically he's saying to her mother, turn over other Jews and let me hit on your daughter and don't tell her that this is why you guys got out of the camp. Uh, so so rat out other Jews and pimp out your daughter and uh, and you'll survive. And of course, he can't even keep that promise because after uh, she rats out the forger and therefore the other Jews, you know, uh, Servier sort of stabs him in the back and, and Rita and her mother are still in the camp as of the end of the episode. Well, that's, and it's why he goes to get Sarah Meyer because he needs to swap out. Right. So, and, and, and I just, this arc for Servier over the two episodes of him sort of looking stomach sick over the, the idea that they're going to separate kids from parents by the end is practically skipping up the stairs because, you know, he's, he's got enough Jew. He's got more Jews than his quota. Oh, they, they met the quota. In fact, they they beat it. And they're the only town in the Nora Jura to have done that. Uh, and um, and I, I uh, having gone through this, I like forget how I like hate Servier so much. Um, I, I just, uh, God, I hate him. Uh, anyway, uh, and he also seems to know that Marchetti likes Rita and is willing to sort of keep that secret as long as he can get some. So anyway, uh, yes, that is why, um, we, we don't know as the end of this episode, but, but Marchetti's, what Marchetti is trying to do is swap Sarah so he can get clearly Rita out. Um, and he, he, based on the numbers that Servier is giving him, only has one person. So it doesn't look like if he's successful, the mother gets to go. Um, but anyway, I don't know if you have anything else. Uh, I think we've, we've covered a lot of territory. I have one thing, which is a slight correction uh, about the French internment camp, uh, which I uh, mispronounced earlier. It is Drancy, 
Um, and I, again, I don't know, it's D-R-A-N-C-Y. Uh, and it was in the northern suburbs of Paris. And it was used as an internment camp uh, during, f- through which 67,000 French, Polish, and German Jews uh, were deported in 64 separate uh, rail transports, including 6,000 children uh, of... Um, uh, so that is the, uh, uh, it is, uh, I mispronounced it earlier and, uh, just, I, I wanted to, uh, correct that. Well, that's, that's great. I did my, uh, that, that our, our, our fidelity to better translations, uh, we are, we, we've, we're, we're doing our best. Well, uh, I, I, I don't <laughs> promise correct pronunciations, but I do think one shouldn't confuse R's with N's either in French or in English. And, uh, uh, and so I thought I should at least, it, uh, at least get the spelling right. All right. All right, guys, we'll be back next week to do episodes five and six. And until then, Edith, take us home. This one's for you, JVL. Nous, nous aimions bien tendrement. Oh, me tous les amants. Et puis un jour.